Good evening, church family. Tonight, I'm going to be reading two passages for us, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 to 11, and then after that, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1 to 14. But turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 to start with. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. Here is the word of the Lord. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, said the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear it's full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. And now Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1 to 14. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of travel come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders seize because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors of the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along, and desire no longer is stirred. Then man goes to his eternal home, and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. 
of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. It's always difficult to know how to introduce a new book or a new series, and so I've decided to do it with this video. So have a look at this, and let's have it loud and clear. Isn't that awesome? Do you, know the, do you know the advert was banned on British TV? 2002. Anyone, anyone alive in 2002 in the room? Oh, a few of us. Welcome. Um, it was banned in the UK. Well, not banned, but taken off TV in the UK because people complained that it was too brutal about the subject of death. Isn't that interesting? And yet it's an excellent summary for what the message of the book of Ecclesiastes is. You're born, you live a life full of trouble, and then you die. So seize the day, carpe diem. Sounds, um, at first glance, did you pick up the, the, the verse for university students as Almary read for us? Look at chapter 12 and verse 12. It says, of making many books there is no end and much study wearies the body. You should send that verse to your parents, you guys. Um, it's, it's a book that looks at the darkness of a life that has no ultimate meaning. And his answer is, enjoy the temporal pleasures that lighten the burden. Uh, look at chapter 8 and verse 15 on the screen. So I commend the enjoyment of life <clears throat> because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry, be glad. Then joy will accompany them in the toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, comes many, many times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter 11 and verse 8. Many, however many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. How do you feel about that? You're at the beginning of your university career, or halfway through it, or near the end of it. You don't think life is meaningless. You think life is full of opportunity. But let's see what God has to say about life under the sun. And let's see if we can align our lives with him. So like the Xbox advert, Ecclesiastes is a book that is written to unsettle us. And so I hope that we do feel unsettled, for that is the purpose and the aim of this book. It shows us the world as it is. It's a world that is unpredictable and yet predictable. It's a world that is routine and sometimes boring and often unsatisfying. And it shows us that side of life, and then it offers us something better. It reveals to us, on the one hand, how insubstantial our lives are, and then it offers something better, on the other hand. Now, the NIV um, translation of the Bible says that these are the words of the teacher in chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's have that verse up. Other translations use a different word to teacher. They'll use the word preacher. Or if you're Afrikaans, you might know it as prediker. And that's what the book is called in the Afrikaans Bible. Um, these are the words of a person who has called together a group of God's people. He has assembled a group of God's people and he's addressing them like a king or like a priest or like a pastor. The Greek word for the word assemble or assembly is the word ecclesia, 
from which we get the word Ecclesiastes. That's why it's called Ecclesiastes. It's written um, by the one who gathers together a congregation, an assembly of people, to talk to them about life. Now, in the first heading of three tonight is there are actually two wise men in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me show you the pattern that it follows. In the first 11 verses of chapter 1, which was read for us tonight, we have the prologue of the book that is given to us by a narrator who is wise man number one, and he speaks about the preacher in the third person. So verse 1 of chapter 1, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's third person speak. But in chapter 1 and verse 12, we have the preacher speak. He comes onto the stage and he says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And then we listen to his sermon all the way to chapter 12 and verse 9, verse 8 rather, and then chapter 12, verse 9, for the last five verses, we get the narrator who comes back and he gives us an epilogue, a summary of all that we have heard. Now, who do you think verse 1 of chapter 1, let's have that on the screen, who is that talking about? The words of the teacher, son of David, king on Jerusalem. Who does it sound like? Anyone? Not a rhetorical question. Solomon. That's the most natural reading of the verse. He was the biological son of King David. King David was the Nelson Mandela of Israel. He was their greatest leader who took them to great heights. It was never the same after, Nelson, I mean, after King David. <laughs> Did I say that? Sorry. Um, he ruled the kingdom of Israel 3,000 years ago in 1,000 B.C., there are three books in the Old Testament, wisdom books in the Old Te Testament, that are attributed to Solomon and to his authorship. The book of Proverbs, the book of Song of Songs, and this book, Ecclesiastes. In 1 Kings chapter 8, which you can go and read on your own time, is the story of King Solomon. He actually did assemble the people of Israel to speak God's word to them. In chapter 1 and verse 12, he identifies himself as the king of Israel who ruled Jerusalem. In verse 16, he says that he was an exceedingly wise man, even if he says so himself. He might not have been a humble man, but he was a wise man. In chapter 2 and verse 4 and following, we're told that he had fantastic wealth. And so what you have is really a description of David's son Solomon. The tradition which can't be proved, but some scholars have suggested that maybe the book of Ecclesiastes is actually Solomon's repentance book. Because in 1 Kings 11, which you can read on your own time, Solomon starts to worship idols. He follows his 700 wives, which might have been a problem in the first place, but they lead him into idolatry and idol worship. And so although the Bible doesn't tell us that he repented from that and that he came back from that, some scholars think that there is a possibility that maybe Ecclesiastes is his repentance work. So he introduces the preacher to us in verse 1, and in verses 2 to 11, which I'm focusing in on tonight, he gives us really a summary, his sermon notes, if you like, of the bulk of the book. He's going to give us a little a prelude, a preview of what the preacher is going to say in much more detail, which I hope you'll come back for in the weeks to come. So let's look secondly, and this is my longest point, at the world that we live in. That's what is described by the preacher from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 12, but we're going to get a summary of that now. Here is the preacher's view of the world that we live in. 
And did you notice verse 2? It doesn't start on a high note, does it? Five times in one verse we have the word meaningless. Let's have verse 2 on the screen, please. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Let's keep it up for a little while. That is, the preacher's view of the world is that the world, under the sun, key phrase, is meaningless. You know, the word meaningless is a very important word. It's mentioned 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes and 32 times in the rest of the whole Bible. The book of Ecclesiastes is about meaninglessness. Um, in verse, verse 2, literally reads like this. Meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Meaninglessness of meaninglessnesses. Everything is meaningless. Do you get the point? Five times the hammer blow. Meaningless. That same verse is repeated in chapter 12 and verse 8. And acts really right at the end of the book, chapter 12 and verse 8, and acts as a bookend to the whole book. You've got it in chapter 1, verse 2 at the beginning. You've got it in chapter 12, verse 8 at the end. The same verse. And so everything in between must relate to the bookends. The preacher's message, basically in a word, is that life is full of trouble and then you die. And the word meaningless, <clears throat> it can be translated in different ways. It can mean breath. Life is like a breath. It's very brief. It's over quickly. Or it's like mist. You can see it, but you can't grasp it. Or like smoke. Um, he's saying that life is fleeting, uh, like a recently blown out candle. You can see the smoke, can't you? You can smell it. But try and grab it. You can't grab it. It's insubstantial. And so the basic meaning of meaningless is that life can be experienced as insubstantial, unsatisfying, frustrating, trivial, without purpose, transitory, temporary, fleeting. This is a description of the world that we live in. If you don't think that life is mostly about suffering, it's because you're not 40 years old yet. If you've had a relatively easy life up until now, wait until you're 40. Then you'll see that life is actually about suffering. The preacher is right. It is a description of the world that we live in. And you know he knows his Bible well. Look at chapter 3 and verse 20 on the screen. <clears throat> he says, all go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Do those words sound familiar to any Bible readers in the room? It actually comes from Genesis chapter 3. Maybe you don't know what that's about. Genesis 3 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. It's a massive turning point in the Bible because it describes the fall of mankind from grace into sin. And God, in response to Adam and Eve's rebelliousness against him, curses the earth and curses work. Here's the verse. By the sweat of your brow, he says to Adam, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. That's God cursing work. Work is meant to be horrible. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Death is introduced for the first time into the world that God created. And you know, the introduction of death into the creation makes our lives fleeting, futile, and insubstantial. If all there is in this world, life under the sun, if all there is, is only what you can see and touch and taste, and death is at the end of it, then life is completely purposeless. 
It sounds a little bit like what uh, Paul says in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8 and verse 20. He says this, For the creation was subjected to frustration. The word frustration is the word meaningless. Same word. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. He's saying an extraordinary thing there, friends. He's saying that God is the one who put frustration into the world. Frustration is from God. Because God wants to drive us to him. Because he does not live under the sun. He's above the sun. And only when we look to him will meaning creep back into our lives. Now, he makes five very hard to argue with observations about life to back up this view that life is meaningless. So let me show you all of them in one go, and then I'm going to spend just a couple minutes on each. Nothing is ever gained, verse 3. Nothing really changes, verse 4. Nothing ever satisfies, verse 8. Nothing is new, verse 9. No one is remembered, verse 11. Nothing is ever gained, look at verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? You know, do you know that two-thirds of your life is either spent sleeping or working? Two-thirds of your life, sleeping or working. That is, two-thirds of your life is spent either unproductively or in toil. You sleep, you wake, you work, you come home, and guess what? You sleep, you wake, you work. Young professionals, am I telling the truth here? Students don't think that this happens, but wait until you graduate. Then suddenly you realize, actually the Bible's right about this. You sleep, you wake, you work. Nothing really changes, verses 4 to 6. Let me read this for us. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. Life is monotonous. That's what he's saying. Generations come and go like bugs on the windscreen of life. We are hardly noticed. We are so insignificant in the great scheme of things. The sun rises and sets. The wind blows and blows. The rivers keep running. Nothing ever changes. It's just the same thing over and over again. All the same patterns. The sea is never full. The wind is never finished. The sun never arrives. It just keeps going in circles. Nothing ever satisfies. Verse 8. All things are wearisome more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Verse 8 is a very important verse. Let's leave it on that for a bit. I want you to see three parallel statements that he's making in that verse, which are important to see. Number one, a man is not able to speak. Number two, an eye is not satisfied with seeing. And number three, an ear is not filled with hearing. A man is not able to speak. Life can be so boring that it is beyond words. It's so boring. You can get bored with anything. My wife and I had a trip to Disneyland years ago. We were in our 30s. We were so excited. We felt like I was in primary school. Everybody dreams of going to Disneyland. The thing that struck us more than any of the rides or anything else was just how bored everybody who works there was. How can you get bored working at Disneyland? Well, apparently you can. Everything can be boring. It can be boring beyond words. The eye never reaches the point where it can take in more. Nor does the ear ever become saturated with sounds. DSTV, dozens of channels, nothing to watch. Netflix, 15,000 movies, and still you're not satisfied. 
iTunes, 40 million songs, and you can't wait for the next album to drop. And then there's TikTok, YouTube Shorts, and Instagram Reels. I don't know anything about these things because I'm not on Bookface or anything like that. <laughs> it is endless and repetitive and ultimately boring. That's why I know that you're so glad that holidays are over. You can only watch so many YouTube Shorts in one, in one period of three months off. Bored out of our minds, things are wearisome. Doesn't matter what you do, it'll become boring eventually. Get to a certain age, and really most of life is boring. Never satisfies. Nothing is new, verse 9. Now, let me tell you something. About eight or nine years ago, I bought these very fashionable Crocs. Can you see them? Wait, I'm going to show you properly. Check at those, guys. All right. My girls were so embarrassed that they told me that they will never be seen with me in public if I wear these Crocs. So dutifully, I put them away. And I took them out a few months ago. And my son saw them. And he went, oh, those are so cool. <laughs> you know, nothing is new. It always, you know, when I was um, at Stellenbosch University in the late 80s, I sported very proudly an awesome mullet. And I've noticed that it's come back into fashion. Where's Michael? <laughs> Nothing is new. It just goes in circles. Someone might reply, well, actually, the world is a better place than before. In comparison to previous um, generations, we are richer, we are healthier, we are living longer, we're more mobile, we're better educated than our grandparents. And there is truth in that. But simultaneously, it is also true, it is equally true that we are more addicted, depressed, anxious, and fragmented than any generation prior to ours. Divorce and infidelity and suicide rates and abuse are at unprecedented levels. Nothing is new. We've eliminated the transatlantic slave trade, and yet billion-dollar industry every year, people and children trafficking, a growing pandemic in the world. Slavery still is alive and well, apparently, in our world. Nothing is new. And while it's true that new technology exists, the technology march, the technological march isn't new. The use of good technology for evil purposes isn't new. That's been true for the human race for as long as we've been around. We used to be optimistic about the human race. Given enough time and technology, we'll solve all of our problems. I hope you've been disinvested of that idea. It's not true. We held that view very, very um, strongly until the 20th century happened. And we had the First World War in 1914, the war to end all wars. You are right. Nothing is new. Fifth, no one is remembered. Look at verse 11. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. You know, within 30 to 40 years after you're dead, no one will remember you. Put up your hand if you know the first name of your great-grandparents. Okay, a few of us, but it's the minority, though, isn't it? I met my great-granny only once. I was very, very young when I met her, and then she wasn't around after that. Um, my, I know nothing about my paternal grandfather. He died before I was born. I only learned his name a few years ago. And my children know nothing about him. It's had no impact on their lives whatsoever. You will not be remembered. You might get your name on a building, 
But who remembers what that, what that person was who that building is named after? I don't know. Aren't you glad you came to church today, guys? You know, the preacher was accomplished in many things. Inspirational speaking wasn't one of them. He wasn't invited to do a TED Talks anywhere because this is depressing stuff. But this is what life under the sun is like. And, and you know, aspects of our generation, of your generation and our culture, accept this view of the world. And they have the view kind of, well, I don't care if we're going nowhere as long as I'm happy on the journey. I'm just trying to be happy while I go nowhere. A lot of people live like that. Eat, drink, and be, mer and be merry. Suck the marrow from the bones. Get what you can. He who dies with the most toys wins. That's the view of our world. What a shallow, unthoughtful view of life that is. The preacher will offer us something better. In the darkness of a life that has no ultimate meaning, the preacher says, enjoy the temporal pleasures that lighten the burden. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Look at what he says in chapter 5 and verse 18. This is what I've observed to be good. That it's appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God, for they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. If you've got enough money to be distracted your whole life and to enjoy the next thrill and the next adrenaline thrill, well, you might never actually think seriously about life if you can just keep entertaining yourself to death. But you know, it feels wrong, doesn't it? It feels wrong. It, it feels wrong that life has no ultimate, ultimate meaning. Don't you feel that there's got to be more to life than that? If, you know, the cows don't wander around the field wondering what the purpose of their lives are. Their purpose is clear. It's the braai on Friday night. <laughs> it's humans who incurably ask what is the purpose of life. Every society in history has tried to find meaning. It is unique to us. And so here is his point. The feeling of emptiness and meaninglessness is a burden that God has put on us to drive us to him. I'm going to say that again for the note takers. It's very important. The feeling of emptiness and meaninglessness is a burden that God has put on us to drive us to him. So let's talk about God, third and final heading, the God above the sun. You know, in order to understand the book, the main point, we've got to look at chapter 12, the bookend, the other bookend of the book. Uh, there are three imperatives that he gives in chapter 12, and there is three commands, and there is one very sobering reminder. Let me show them to you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the commands. We'll get to that later in the series. Number one is chapter 12 and verse 1. Let's have a look at that. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you say, I find no pleasure in them. I want to ask you guys, let's, have that, let's keep that verse up for a bit. I want to ask you guys, you know, um, most people become Christians between the age of 5 and 20. A lot of Christians in this room tonight will say that that's them. They, somewhere between 5 and 20 you become a Christian. It's a wonderful thing 
to find your creator, to remember your creator in your youth because you won't live a life that is filled with regrets that you will one day look back on and just despair. A lot of people do that. But I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are saying, well, I'm going to have some fun when I'm young, and then when I'm old, then I'm going to become a Christian. Then I'll remember my Creator. And the preacher would say to you, you fool. Rather remember your Creator today. Remember your Creator means pay attention to your relationship with God, for He is the only part of the world who is above the sun. If you're going to write him out of your life and only exist under the sun, then your life is meaningless. Remember your creator. Don't get so caught up in the creation, in the good things that God has made, and forget your creator. Don't chase the relationship, the success, the marks, the wealth, the, the status, whatever. Don't chase those things and forget your Creator. For that is to make the good gifts of God, like health and wealth and status and education and success, all good gifts that come from God, it's to make good gifts ultimate things. God the Creator is the ultimate thing, not that which He has created. If you are going to worship the creation, your life is without purpose and meaningless. Worship the Creator. Don't walk into the art gallery and look at a beautiful painting and say to the painting, what a clever painting you are. How wonderful that you've painted yourself. What a dumb thing to do. Look for the painter. Talk to him about what he's done. Remember your creator in your youth. Here's the, the next two commandments that he gives. It's chapter 12 and verse 13. Look at what that says. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the narrator. We're back to the narrator. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Here are the two commands. Fear God and keep his commandments. You know, these three things, remember your creator, fear God, keep his commandments, they're all actually the same thing. What he's saying here is he's saying, pay attention to your relationship with God. The New Testament equivalent of fear God and keep his commandments is... Repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus who came to earth from above the sun. Came to this frustrated, meaningless earth. Submitted himself to death. And then returned above the sun. Pay attention to God. Now I've got to close. And I want to, um, I want to draw attention to the final um, very confronting verse, which is the last verse of the book. It's chapter 12 and verse 14. And I want to talk to you about judgment day. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. I want to tell you why you should be glad for judgment day. Judgment day is the great event in history, in history future which shows without any shadow of a doubt that your life is not meaningless. For you will be called upon to account to God for it, for how you have chosen to live your life, every decision that you've made, every thought that you've thought, every deed that you've done, every word that you've spoken, every thought 
the thoughts that you have had, even tonight maybe, that you hope the person next to you never finds out about. God knows about it. Do you think he's missed that? No. The verse says, let's keep it up. He will judge every deed in, in judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. God help us. I don't want you to know what the hidden things are in my life, and you don't want me to know yours either. God knows, because your life is so important to him that he has kept a record. He has noticed your thought life. How extraordinary that the great God who made the heavens and the earth, who holds the universe in the palm of his hands, knows you by name and has a record of your thought life that he's going to ask you about one day. Can you see the dignity that that gives us? Can you see the worth that that gives us? You're not an impersonal force somewhere out there in the universe. He is a deeply personal being who knows you, who not has noticed how you have chosen to live your life, who knows what decision you've made about him. That gives us dignity and worth and purpose like nothing else. The great God of the universe. One day you'll meet him. Now, I find that a very terrifying thought. But I want to tell you the good news about this. If you are trusting in Jesus, then Jesus will be your advocate on Judgment Day. If you are trusting in Jesus, if you have hitched your trailer to Jesus by repenting, by stopping pretending that you are the God of your own life and getting off the throne of your life quickly and asking him to come onto the throne of your life, if you've done that, and if you've said sorry to him for pretending that you were the king, then you've got nothing to fear on Judgment Day because Judgment Day happened for you on the day that Jesus died on the cross. On that day, Jesus paid the price for all of my thoughts and my words and my deeds and yours. And so on Judgment Day, I can look forward to it. I know that God takes my life seriously. I know that God notes my decision to ask Jesus onto the throne of my life. I wonder if you've done that. I want to say to you, I'm not trying to, this is not scare tactics. I'm telling you how to get meaning in your life. It's come to Jesus in faith and repentance. For a day is coming at the end of time, not too long from now, when you'll be held to account. And wouldn't it be a better thing to say, do you know what? I'm trusting in Jesus. He speaks for me. If you're not going to do that, I wonder what your plan is for Judgment Day. What you're going to do. I don't, know what, I don't know what else there is to do. But what hope and what joy and what comfort and what security to say. Do you know what? Every, that whole rap sheet is all true, but let me have Jesus speak for me. He's my advocate. Have you come to Jesus? We'd love to help you with that if you haven't. I don't think, I, I don't assume in a crowd like this that, that everyone here has come to Jesus. Maybe you're inquiring. Maybe you're not ready to do that. That's fine. You're welcome. Keep coming. And let's talk. That's all I've got. Who's got a question?